<laughs> well, that's a uh, hope-filled, inspiring video for uh, Mother's Day, right? Uh, a little disconnected there, but uh, not as awkward as I remember the, the first Mother's Day as a youth pastor back when I was uh, all of 23 years old, where the pastor asked me to read a passage of scripture during the adult service uh, on Mother's Day. And the passage of scripture was 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, where it talks about how church leaders must be, must be people whose life is abo- above reproach. They are to be people of integrity, faithful to their spouse. They are to exercise self-control and live wisely and have a good reputation. Instead of reading 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, I turned to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, and I read these words on Mother's Day. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, ungrateful, and disobedient to their parents. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> uh, so, but today we, uh, we t- tackle a, a pretty heavy topic in this series, I Doubt It. We started back on Easter Sunday where we talked about doubting the resurrection and how we could have faith in that. Uh, in the coming weeks, we, we, we talked about uh, why there's so much evil and suffering in this world and how we come to resolution about that. Last week, we talked about how to reconcile faith and science in ways that, like, in, especially when you talk to your friends and coworkers, they seem contradictory. Well, today we want to talk about some problems and issues around the Bible. Here at Grace, we're always encouraging you to read and study and meditate on the Bible. And many times when you do, God speaks to you in powerful and profound ways. But sometimes you read it and we go, I just don't get this. Sometimes it's worse. We read it and we go, this just can't be right. And so maybe you've felt that way before. You've come across a passage of scripture that just seems really perplexing and you don't know how to figure it out. Uh, in in uh, my role as, as a pastor, I talk a lot with people both inside the church and outside the church, uh, fielding a lot of questions as, as it comes to the Bible. And so, for example, I was talking to an attorney not that long ago, and he said, you know, son, my job inside the courtroom is to cross-examine uh, witnesses to see if their witness is even credible. And so what I do is I look for places where their testimony doesn't line up or corroborate with all, what other people are saying. And so when I read the Gospels, I find consistently that there is inconsistency. One Gospel writer says this, another one says that. If if that was happening inside the courtroom, I'd have all of them disqualified as unreliable witnesses. What am I supposed to do with that? I was talking to another person who's a student at Eastern Michigan, and she said, you know, I read some of the passages, especially in the Old Testament, and I I mean, are we really supposed to stone disobedient children? Like, that doesn't make sense. How do I make sense of that? And, and how, how do I make sense of the way women are treated or the command of, you know, uh, n- uh, not eating pork or shellfish or not cooking a goat in its mother's milk? I just don't get it. And so there are places in Scripture that we struggle with what the Bible says. So on one hand, we love the Bible because it's God's written word to us, and so it nourishes us and feeds us spiritually At the same time, there's some really perplexing uh, questions and challenging issues that we are confronted with. And so we want to wrestle with some of these uh, issues, but ultimately, we we want you to leave here and encourage you to want to open up your Bible and read it for yourself and to hear God speaking through those words to your soul. That's really the ultimate goal. And and Paul says this in in, uh, uh, 2 Timothy, 
uh, I don't know what 1 Timothy 3 says. 2 Timothy 3, he says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so Paul talks about uh, the nature of, of, of scripture. Now, when he says inspired here, that, that's really interesting because in, in the Greek, it's the word theonoustos. Uh, and, and did you know that there's, that word in the Greek appears only once in the entire first century Greek world that we know of? In other words, it seems like Paul made this word up to express something that he wanted people to understand. This word inspired literally means God breathed. He wanted people to understand that God breathed upon the human writers of scripture uh, and he breathed upon the words and ideas found in these pages in ways that would speak to us even thousands and thousands of years later. I think part of the challenge when it comes to uh, reading the Bible is how we see and use the Bible. So some people say, for example, the Bible is an acronym, right? B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. Uh, And so they will say, yeah, the Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. Well, maybe, I mean, that's kind of cute, but I think it's a lot more than that. Other people will say, well, the Bible is like an owner's manual. God owns you, and this is like the manual for living the way God designed you to be. And, And I think that's a helpful metaphor, but again, I think it's so much more than just a helpful reference guide for us. Really, it's a story of who God is and what he's doing. Some people treat the Bible kind of like a magic eight ball, right? Do, do you remember that? You, you have this magic eight ball and you, have a, you ask it a question, you shake it up and you wait for an answer and, and then it, it gives you an answer. And so, you know, you, you kind of go, well, will some sermon be short or long today? Right? You shake up the eight ball and what does the magic eight ball say? Better not tell you now. I, I don't know if that's good news or bad news for you, but... Uh, And some people, again, uh, and I've certainly done this when I was young, want to play kind of like Bible roulette, right? Where you open up the Bible at random, God, speak to me through your word. You turn the Bible at a random place, Matthew 27, 5, Judas hanged himself. And you kind of scratch your head, go, okay, I'm I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with that. God, God, you know, okay, Luke chapter 10, verse 37, go and do likewise. And you're like, okay, now I really don't know what to do. I don't think that's what God wants me to do. So the Bible's not meant to be used that way, but rather scripture is used for instruction and guidance, like Paul says, and it was something that shaped the lives of God's people in Jesus' day, and it still shapes our lives today, even now. But it's still confusing at times, and there are times where it's challenging and perplexing, and we just don't know what to do with it. Today, I want to go over, in the time remaining that we have, four, uh, go over four different categories of questions about the Bible, and maybe these are questions that you may have had uh, currently or in the past. So we're gonna address factual errors, internal contradictions, oppressive cultural practices, and violent commands. I'm gonna touch only briefly on the first two because I think the third and fourth ones are the ones that even Christians really wrestle with. So let's start off with factual errors. Like the attorney was saying, well, I read one thing in one passage and I read somewhere else something, it says something completely different. What am I supposed to make of that? So for example, in 2 Kings chapter 8, it says Ahaziah became king when he at the age of 22. So 1 2 Kings also parallels the stories in 1 and 2 Chronicles, but in 2 Chronicles, the writer of that book says Ahaziah became king when he was not 22, but 42. So which one is it? Was it when he was 22 or 42? 
And some of you are thinking like, who cares? And for most of us, it it doesn't really matter because our view of scripture doesn't collapse on that, but for some it really poses an issue. So one possibility is that Ahaziah was named as king by his father when he was 22, but that he actually ascended the throne uh, in power and authority when he was 42 after his father passed away. That's probably the most likely explanation. Or some people might say, well, the original writers of Kings and Chronicles both agreed, but somewhere along the line, uh, manuscripts that got copied through generation and generation, uh, th- there were some scribal errors. And that could be the case. Most what critics call scribal errors are so minor, kind of like these, that they don't basically f- change uh, the basic beliefs of the Christian faith. Uh, or on a lighter note, you might say that he was 42, but he looked like he was only 22. It doesn't really matter. You know, you could either try to resolve that contradiction or you could say, well, my view of the Bible doesn't collapse based on whether he was 22 or 42. Factual errors, and that's one representation of so many other areas that critics and skeptics will point out. Internal contradictions, I'm going to spend even less time on this, but there are, you know, when you read the gospel accounts, there are different details when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus. So different gospel writers will all have different focuses. And so sometimes there's one angel, sometimes there's two, sometimes they're standing outside the tomb, sometimes they've rolled away. Like, which one is it? And again, just like if, you were to, if I were to ask you, your, your family, let's say, tell me the story of your family vacation last year. I'm sure I would get four different stories depending on uh, whether you're a parent or a child, or or likewise, if four friends saw, witnessed a car accident, I'm sure you would get different details based on where they were standing and what they saw. And what you see in the gospel accounts is they, they may focus on different things and get small details kind of different, but they agree on some of the major things, right? That the stone was rolled away, the tomb was empty, Jesus' body was gone, and there were angels at, at the tomb. And so again, a lot of these things can be resolved once you kind of think uh, more deeply about these issues. Let's go to oppressive practices. For example, like slavery. Today, Uh, We look back upon uh, slavery, and and we think it is morally reprehensible that one human being would own uh, another human being and treat them like property. And so the question often comes up by followers of Jesus and uh, those outside, why is it that the Bible uh, is silent as it relates to the issue of slavery? It doesn't condemn it. Well, author and pastor Tim Keller, I think, has a great point. He says, we need to consider that the Bible might not always be teaching what we think it's teaching. So we read uh, and we, we acknowledge that slavery existed, but oftentimes what we miss is this. When we hear the word slave, we think of the, uh, uh, the uh, African slave trade, which happened here in the States, where owners beat their, their, beat their slaves and even kill them without any fear of repercussions. Uh, One thing that we don't understand that historians tell us that first century Greco-Roman slavery wasn't like that at all. First of all, uh, slaves were not identified by race uh, and they weren't owned in the same way that uh, they did here uh, back when that happened in the States. They were not segregated. They were not uh, killed on a whim and they weren't even tortured. Rather, they were trusted household servants that acted as librarians, accountants, um, uh, teachers for their kids, and even estate managers. Uh, that doesn't mean that slavery was hard or, or that it was wrong, but just to understand, it was also a form of employment for most people, and you actually could work your way out of slavery after serving your master for 7 to 15 years. 
In fact, when you read the Bible, what we often miss too is that the Bible elevates the status of slavery. The conditions were terrible back then, but the Bible provides protection and elevates their status, not only of slaves, but of women who were considered expendable property back then, unfortunately. The Bible goes even further to provide rights and protection against the weakest and poorest in society. And so widows and orphans and and foreigners are protected, protected against exploitation and abuse. But we often miss that because we take our modern Western culture and impose it on the text. And even though the Bible doesn't outright condemn slavery, that doesn't mean that the Bible is necessarily affirming it. Uh, one uh, resource I would recommend uh, to you is, is this called the Cultural Background Study Bible. Uh, again, the Bible was written for us, but because it wasn't written to us, so often we miss the cultural and historical context in which uh, that is written, and the study Bible does an excellent job of providing some of those uh, insights. Another common misunderstanding as it relates to oppressive practices uh, is when people see examples of, let's say, polygamy in the Bible and assume that somehow God is affirming the practice of polygamy. And so, not that long ago, I saw uh, this meme on social media, and they said something like, yeah, you want to see what biblical marriage looks like? And they posted this little meme, and here are some many examples, a man and a woman, nuclear family, but hey, man, wives, concubines, man plus woman plus woman's property, man plus woman plus woman plus woman, and so many other examples and now what, they, what, what isn't understood is that just because a story is recorded in the Bible does not mean that, it is, that the Bible is prescribing it like polygamy or adultery. Rather, the Bible is simply describing the world uh, as it is. There's a huge difference between describing and prescribing something. The Bible does not prescribe all these forms of marriages. It is simply describing uh, the world back then. I appreciate what author Kathleen Norris says about the Bible in her book, Amazing Grace. She says, some find it easy to to dismiss the Bible out of hand as negative, vengeful, violent. I can only hope that they are rejecting the violence as entertainment of movies and television on the same grounds and that they say a prayer every time they pick up a daily newspaper or turn on CNN. In the context of real life, the Bible seems refreshingly whole, uh, an honest reflection on humanity in relation to the sacred and the profane. I can't learn enough about it, but I also have to trust what little I know and proceed in faith to seek God there. And so that, that's, again, with a lot of the oppressive practices back then, we, it's, a lot of times we just don't see the, the, the intention behind uh, what's written. Uh, so let's, let's land on this last one, which I think is one of the most perplexing and complex issues uh, of violent commands that are given, especially in the early portions of the Hebrew scripture um, in, in the Bible. So for example, there are command, uh, Old Testament laws in the book of Moses, and there is a whole litany of things that you could be put to death for. They actually call for uh, you to, to stone somebody if they t- commit these crimes. And so here's a list of a few of those things. You could be put to death for worshiping a God other than Yahweh, right? You could be put to death for working on the Sabbath. So if you go and do your laundry today, right, back then somebody could stone you and kill you. You could be put to death for committing adultery. You could be put to death for committing blasphemy. 
using the Lord's name in vain or cursing. You could be put to death for practicing homosexuality. And get this, parents and kids, you could be put to death for disobeying your parents back then. Now, these are all crimes punishable by death. Now, we, we hear this, and, and we think, okay, there may be some merit, especially when our kids are teenagers, to, to at least talk about the threat of this. But for the whole, what parent would ever consider killing their kids for disobedience? None of us. So how do we deal with some of these commands? First, let's recognize that theologians and scholars and pastors have wrestled with this issue of violence in the Bible for thousands of years, and there are entire volumes, literally hundreds of pages in my library that I scoured and researched this week and the last few weeks that have been written about this issue. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to summarize in just a few minutes what scholars and theologians have spent hundreds of hours explaining in books and lectures. So this is kind of like the Cliff Notes version of the Cliff Notes version, if you will. So how do we start to begin, begin to understand some of these violent commands? Well, first, when we read the Old Testament, we have to understand that we are reading about laws and practices that were given to a specific nation, that is the nation of Israel, um, and for a specific time and culture, that is the ancient Near East, when they were ruled under a specific form of governance, that is a theocracy, uh, that is a government ruled by God, and God was trying to accomplish a specific purpose, which is bringing about the redemption of humanity. And so what God does is he begins with an ancient people who have absorbed so many dehumanizing customs and social structures that were inherent in the culture back in the ancient Near East. And back then there were unjust systems of retaliation and vengeance that were perpetrated without any moral laws or limits or restraints. And so what God does is he puts in these commands and laws so that justice is done and that there could be some sense of limits and restraints uh, in a people that don't understand that. And so a lot of these laws and practices all point to a coming time when they would be fulfilled by a new way of believing and a new way of relating to God as he comes in the, com- in the person of Jesus as the coming Messiah. Jesus would come and set up a new kingdom and establish a new covenant And so in light of that, we also need to remember that the laws and commands given in the Old Testament do not represent the Bible's moral pinnacle. It is not that, but instead it is the starting point. It is the point where God is patiently working with a stubborn people whose tendency is to wander away from him. And what he does is he grows them up, he matures them and develops them over time towards the place where they could live according to God's ideal. And he does it all through the Old Testament, and then it culminates when Jesus finally comes to earth. God comes in the form of human flesh, and in the person of Jesus Christ, we have the clearest picture of who God is and what his heart is intended for. We are able to see God in ways that we could not see before. And so the, the, uh, one of the primary principles that we need to understand is that Jesus becomes the lens through which we understand and interpret all of Scripture. 
And so the filter uh, now in the new covenant is through the filter of love God and love people with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind more than anything else. And so it'd be erroneous for us to see Old Testament laws and commands as offering an ideal and universal ethic for all cultures across all ages. It's just simply uh, not what it was intended. So scholars call this the idea of progressive revelation. God reveals more and more of his heart and who he is to people as, as he uh, grow, grooms them to become the people that he wants them to be. And so there is almost, if you will, a planned obsolescence to certain parts of the Mosaic law until Jesus comes and fulfills uh, those laws. And this is what the story of the Bible is about. Right? It's not about you, it's not about me, it's not about God telling me what to do, right? although though we, that is a result of it. It is the story of who God is. It's fleshing out his character. It's talking about what he has done and what he is doing right now in this world and in your life and what he will one day accomplish. So does that explanation solve everything? No. I mean, it, it, it helps, but, but just to say it's okay to wrestle with parts of the Bible. But let's also recognize that in the, in the Bible are the words of life. And that's where I want to end up here. You see, I, I began reading, the, I grew up in a Christian home, my dad was a pastor, and I, I, I didn't begin reading the Bible until I was a teenager. So one day I started in Genesis and I started reading it. And, just, and as I was reading the story, I was really fascinated by, by the stories and the narratives and what, what was happening. And, and there were parts where I, I, I felt like, oh, I was offended, parts I didn't understand. But as I, I, as I continued to read the Bible, there's this, this feeling that, that something was speaking to me, that somehow I, I started to belong to a larger story. And, and as I continued to read, especially into the New Testament, I could sense, well, I think God is actually whispering to me. He's saying to me, I love you. I'm pursuing you. You belong to me. You are not your own, but, but you are my child. I, I fell in love with, with the person of Jesus as I continued to read the, the Bible. I, that was the first time I read through it from cover to cover. And when I got to the story of the crucifixion, I remember feeling just crushed, like, oh my goodness, here's the hope of the Messiah, and it's gone now. And by the time I got to the end of the Gospel of Luke, I, I surrendered my life. My freshman year in college, uh, I, I gave my life to Christ. And that happened because I was reading this book. And uh, it changed my life. Does that mean I, I still don't wrestle with it? No, I, I still wrestle with parts of this book. But God speaks to me through it every day. Every morning I get up, I, I open to its words, and, and it, this book represents my hopes and dreams. The person I hope to become and the person I am today was shaped by the words that are found in these, uh, 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 the words on these pages. And so more than anything else, I want you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to leave here with a deep sense of longing to want to open up the words of Scripture and let it shape your life. So... Maybe today we started off with the, the, the posture of questioning the Bible. Perhaps as we, as we send you off, perhaps I would ask you to kind of change positions. That instead of questioning the Bible, I would encourage you to let the Bible question you. Let it act as a mirror to, to critique you, to, to search you out, to chase after you. And let it become, uh, and let the words that are written there shape uh, you to become the person that God wants you to be. One of my favorite quotes by Mark Twain, uh, especially as he talks about the Bible, is when he says this, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me, it's the parts of the Bible that I do understand. 
And so there are parts of the Bible that I still don't understand. And they bother me, but not as much as the parts that I do understand. Love your enemy. Forgive those who, like those are the parts that really still bother me because I know I'm still so far away from who Jesus wants me to be. That's our calling. That's our challenge. If you're not a Christian today, we're so glad you're here. here. Here'd be my challenge for you. Would you just pick this up, read it, and see if God doesn't speak to you as well. If you don't have one, we're happy to give you one. Come find me after the service. Let's bow our heads and let's pray together. And so, God, we come to you with open hearts asking you to search us, to expose the places in our lives that are not uh, fully in accordance to your will and to your ways. And even as we wrestle with different parts of your command, God, we want to acknowledge that we're, we're the child, we're the humans, we're the ones with limited knowledge, we're the ones thinking that we know best. God, would you help us to trust in your word and in your character and what you say and who you say we are and what you call us to do. And so, God, we love you and we want to love you more today and tomorrow than we do today because you first loved us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.